Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight Dr. David Flatt will be leading us in a very dense lesson on multiple books from the Old Testament. Now, dense not in a negative way, just dense in the sense that we're covering a lot of ground tonight. So we are trying to get through the Old Testament in a reasonable amount of time, and with 39 different books, it does take a while unless you take them in big chunks. And so we're going to be looking at some more historical books. We looked last week at Judges and Joshua, and then tonight we'll be looking at the books of Ruth, which is a very famous and popular book. It's a beautiful book. We'll get into that. Also, the books of uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And so, a lot of history on, to be frank, the decline of uh, Israel, but at times, the height of Israel. And so, we'll be talking about many characters that I'm sure you know extremely well. Samuel, David, Saul, Solomon, uh, lots of names that we know from Sunday school. And we'll be going into a little bit more depth, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So, David Flatt, right now, with Ruth through Second Chronicles. Okay, so we've been going through the story, and so this is chapter 5. This is uh, the rise and fall of Israel's kingdom. So if you just kind of want to think about where we are, um, Kyle is right that you have Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles in chapter 5 here. So this is the rise and fall of Israel's kingdom. I initially wasn't going to teach on First and Second Chronicles, even though it's in this section, because First and Second Chronicles is basically a rehash of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, just told from a different perspective. But after reading it and kind of thinking about it, I do think there's some kind of relevant points to make. So we're going to talk about it briefly, but we'll spend most of our time talking about Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and then First and Second Kings. What I hope you see here, I know this is like <clears throat> something that seems like a lot of work, like keep coming to Bible study and going through this thing. But in 13 weeks, you're going to walk through the story of the whole Bible. And I think we can, we'll really see how it fits together. And of course, it's, I mean, it's written by, I think like 30-something different people over about 2,000 years of authorship. And it tells one cohesive story from the beginning of the universe to the end of time. And uh, it's really a beautiful story, and I, I think it's important that we understand it. So we're at Chapter 5. We're actually going to take a break after uh, tonight. I'll be off for Martin Luther King weekend. Then we'll do an outreach group. We'll invite our friends to come, and we'll talk about Old Testament prophecy and kind of how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together. Um, and then we're going to do um, we're going to do a short series on um, tough questions. So we'll talk about doubt. We'll talk about suffering. Spend a little bit of time just on a different topic, and then we'll come back to the text. That way, we're not just you know gritting through 13 straight weeks. We'll kind of break it up a little bit. So that's where we've been, and that's where we're going. So let's talk about Ruth. Um, <clears throat> but before we do, maybe we just kind of put everything in context. So. Briefly, we started at the beginning of the universe. Out of nothing, the one true God created everything. And so after creation, then he ends his creation with humanity, creates humans. We live in the good garden with the presence of God, no separation, full intimacy with each other and with God. But of course, that's broken by sin. So sin enters the picture and we're separated from God. And that's really the, uh, the plot tool or the, the crisis that sets up the rest of the narrative. So the rest of the Bible is trying to solve what happens in Genesis 3. So before Genesis 3, there's intimacy, there's union with God and, and humanity, and then it's broken. And so the rest of the story is God's response to that. So Genesis, like up through about Genesis 11, is these like ancient stories, and they kind of have both symbolic and probably some historical significance, but brings us to the story of Abraham. 
in Genesis 12. And so God promises Abraham three things. He's going to give him a great nation. He's going to give him a great land. And he's going to bless all the world through him. At this time, Abraham is a, a pagan guy walking in the desert without kids. So it seems like an unlikely choice for these three great blessings. Uh, but uh, this promise given to Abraham is carried out through his family, the rest of the patriarchs. Abraham has two sons. Isaac is the one that's given the blessing. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is like the scoundrel, steals the um, birthright from Esau. Then Jacob has 12 sons, the 11th of which is Joseph. Joseph tells his brothers that he dreamed that he ruled over over the rest of his brothers, which is we're talking about this this week, but that's like bad move. Like if you got a bunch of brothers, a bunch of big brothers, why would you tell them that you had a dream that you conquered them? So kind of predictably, I guess they beat him up, sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt. God's providence brings the rest of his family to Egypt where they're delivered from the famine. Joseph confronts them and they kind of become united as a family. Then the story stops. 400 years later, those 12 brothers have married, all had a bunch of children. Those children all had a bunch of children. There's like 200, 2 million people is uh, what the, the family has grown into over four centuries. Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. He uh, enslaves the people. Moses comes and leads the people out of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness. They really take their time, do a lot of dumb things before getting to the promised land. They get right to the edge of the promised land. Moses dies. It's kind of unfortunate. Like, spend a whole life, get there. Can't quite make it because of some things he did. Joshua's appointed as his successor. Joshua leads the Israelite people. They conquer all these different ites, the you know, Mennonites, the Canaanites, the, the whole thing. So they conquer the land. And then for the first time, they have their own land. This is the fulfillment, the end of Joshua. That's the fulfillment of God's second promise. I'm going to give you a great land. This is the land. But in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. That's the, what the next book's about, the book of Judges. And so the people of Israel like live horribly, and they do all this kind of stuff, and they barely just kind of hang on to civilization and existence by the skin of their teeth, by God periodically empowering His Spirit into these people that, uh, that the text calls judges, who come in and kind of do things at strategic points to kind of keep the nation together. I think because the nation's got to be preserved because God's going to bless the whole world through these people. And they're not a holy people right now. And so every once in a while, God empowers someone to kind of preserve that line. So that leads us to where we are now, which is kind of the next turn. But before we kind of get into the specific narrative, there's this story of this family in the period of the Judges. So that's the story of Ruth. And so I want to talk about uh, that story just for a few minutes and make a few points. <clears throat> so the, the book of Ruth starts out with this phrase, in the days when the Judges ruled. So this is kind of almost like if you think like these great um, historical novels, or I'm sorry, fantasy novels like... Um, like Chronicles of Narnia. So this is a great, great example. So like in Chronicles of Narnia, the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? So there's like like one page in the last chapter where it's like, and then they, you know, they were, uh, they ruled all of Narnia as kings and queens, and they didn't really tell anything that happens. And then like 40 years later, they go back through the wardrobe and no time has passed. You, you guys, you've all read the story? You know So, but then there's another book, The Horse and His Boy, that he wrote like later. And that book happened like coincidentally, during that 40-year period. Does that make sense? So it's kind of what's happening here. Like there's like this, the big picture story of what's going on, but they come back and say, and this was happening during the period of the Judges. Here's a story that happened to some faithful people, and uh, it's important enough that it made it into Holy Scripture to teach us some lessons. <clears throat> so the theme of Ruth is God's sovereignty, <coughs> wisdom, and covenant kindness often come disguised in hard circumstances 
and mediated through the kindness of others. I want to come back and kind of unpack that sentence after we tell the story of Ruth. But in a lot of ways, God's sovereignty, His wisdom, and His covenant kindness, you could teach a lesson on, on any of those three ideas. And, and it's, all, um, it's all over the pages of Ruth. So, in the days when the judges ruled, you have this man named Elimelech, his wife named Naomi, and they have two sons. They live in Bethlehem, and there's a famine. So they leave Bethlehem to go to Moab, where there's food. So they're immigrants from Bethlehem to Moab. They go to Moab, and their sons fall in love with two Moabite women, Ruth and Obed. So, um... I'm sorry, Orpah. So Ruth and Orpah. And they, so they fall in love with Ruth and Orpah. And then, like, disaster happens to Naomi. Her husband dies. Both of her sons die. So here's Naomi. She's living in this foreign land in Moab. She's got these two Moabite daughter-in-laws who are, I guess, kind of connected to her. But her sons are dead. And she's like, there's nothing really for me here. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back to Israel. And so she decides to leave. And Oprah decides... Oprah, Orpah <laughs> decides that she's going to stay in Moab, which is reasonable. But Ruth has this almost difficult to explain loyalty to her mother-in-law, and she gives this like beautiful speech to her mother-in-law. You maybe even heard it at, like weddings or something. But she has this famous phrase like, "Where you go, I will go. Um, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Do not ask me to depart from you." And in a lot of ways, that's the kind of loyalty to express there. The, the, the preacher in the wedding, his point is always, this is the kind of loyal and covenant faithfulness that we expect in a marriage. I'm, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your friends are my friends. Now we're married. Your God is my God. Now we're married. We're together. And so Naomi expresses that loyalty, goes with her mother-in-law back um, to Bethlehem. So they go there, and now they're like, so they're, they're kind of, Naomi kind of doesn't belong anywhere, but Ruth is an, an immigrant to Bethlehem. So they're poor, they don't have any money, they don't have any resources. They weren't able to inherit their um, father-in-law and husband's property because they're women. So they're really kind of on the outcasts of society. And so Ruth is out scavenging for food. And in, in Deuteronomy, the Israelite law, um, <clears throat> faithful tour keepers would not harvest the edge of their fields. So they'd leave the fields open so that immigrants and the poor can get food uh, to, to feed themselves. And so Ruth is doing that. Turns out she meets this guy named Boaz. He thinks she's kind of cute or whatever. And I just say that. She thinks <laughs> they kind of have a little like attraction to each other. And uh, she goes back and tells Ru um, Naomi. Naomi's like overwhelmed because she knows that Boaz is kind of like a distant relative. And so the way that their culture ran, if you're, so there's this idea called this kinsman redeemer. So if you're related to, um, if, if you're related either brother or the next closest relative and you marry a widow, then you are able to inherit the property that you're, that, um, the dead husband would have, would have had. So Naomi realizes this and re realizes if Ruth falls in love with Boaz, Boaz marries her, then, then we're not going to be poor and destitute anymore and we'll be redeemed. All this evil that's happened to us uh, will be overcome and, and th you know things can be set right. And so Ruth, in her like bold loyalty to her mother-in-law, she takes off her... Um, She's wearing like sackcloth and ashes, like clothes of a, of a grieving widow. She takes that off and dresses up as if to kind of um, pronounce to the world that you know she's available again and goes to Boaz and asks Boaz to marry her. Says, marry me so that, um, so that 
you know, we can inherit your land and I can take care of my mother-in-law. So she's got this deep love and loyalty to, uh, to Naomi. Kind of long story, but basically Boaz says yes and they get married. And then they have a son. So this whole picture of like the death of a son and destruction and fear and weeping ends with like the celebration of this son being born. And this son's name is Obed. And Obed has another son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David who will be the first king that unites all of Israel together. So in the story of Judges, you have this beautiful picture of family loyalty and love and God's providence working together and weaving its way through the story. So the blanks there, B is loyal is loyally. So Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem and Ruth loyally follows. <coughs> C is redeem. Boaz agrees and redeems all the property of the deceased and marries Ruth. They have a son, Obed, who becomes the grandfather of King David and ancestor of King Jesus. It's kind of interesting in the story, there's not the narrator doesn't even mention God, the whole story. The people are definitely God-fearing people. So the language of, of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz is, is colored with Torah following and they talk about God. But I think there's kind of a subtle point there. And it's that in our lives, we I know I am often looking for like this Red Sea moment. Like God part the seas and I will follow that path. Or um, bring the ten plagues upon you know my enemies and, and, and deliver uh, deliver your faithful people from evil. And you, we want that, right? We want like the movie scene. Um, but I think that's generally not the, the way of God and His providence. He's chosen a different way. And so I think the gospel truth here is that God is majestically at work in the mundane moments of life to accomplish His great purposes for both your life and for history. We didn't have enough time to talk about all the details, but you can just see it through the story of Ruth, how God sets up things that just so happen to be, and it ends up to be exactly what both Ruth and Naomi needed to deliver them and to, to make their lives redeemed and whole and not be suffering um, kind of apart from what the life God had planned for them. So they just happen to, to land next to Boaz's land who happens to be like the right legal person to be their kinsman redeemer and they happen to be attracted to each other and they Boaz happens to kind of have a heart that reaches out uh, to Ruth and see something special and they get married. And so you just like see God weaving his story all through there. So that's a personal um, God, God's Providence working personally, but there's also this huge historical picture, right? Because Ruth and Boaz have a son who's the grandfather of King David, who's in the lineage of Jesus. So Jesus' being born in human form was dependent on God's plan being accomplished by Naomi traveling to avoid famine to Moab and her son marrying this Moabite woman and then dying so that they would come back to Bethlehem and move next to Boaz's farm and Boaz would fall in love with her and have a child. And so, you know, a lot of times in life we're like, what is God doing? Like, I would not do it this way. Um, but all in the middle of like this suffering and tragedy and personal loss, God didn't forget Naomi and Ruth. He was still faithful to them and preserved their life. But he was also working on something so much bigger than um, the economic success and the day-to-day -day moments of their life. He was painting a picture for all of history that he had been working on since Genesis 12. And I was going to work on through the end of, of the story. So that's Ruth. I think it's really an awesome story. So let's talk about First and Second Samuel, and I'll let the Bible Project guys get us started.
Okay, so first and second Samuel. So here's the the theme. God is exercising his cosmic, there's your blank there, kingship by inaugurating a Davidic dynasty. So this is a dynasty from the house of David in Israel. And by electing the holy city Jerusalem as a place where David's successor will establish the temple for the worship of God. So that's a big sentence uh, with bigger words than we usually use to talk with. I want to focus in on this idea of kingship, though, because that's something that's going to run through really a lot of the story of the Bible from here on out. So God creates a kingdom out of the people of Israel, and then later the New Testament plays off of that to show a new and different kind of kingdom. So you have all these prophecies about how a kingdom's coming, and God's going to bless David's line to be rulers and to be kings, and then we kind of get a surprising twist at the end of the story. Of course, we know the story, so I'm not like leaving you like hanging on edge here, but I think it's important to kind of see how the story unfolds chronologically. You wouldn't expect what happens with King Jesus and this lowly church with timid people in, the, in an upper room waiting on the Holy Spirit, scared for their lives from the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders, uh, that that's the kingdom that God has in mind. Um, but it starts here, and that, that theme plays on into the book of Revelation where the king returns. And uh, So I, I don't want to miss that, um, that theme that kind of starts here. Okay, so there's three main characters in the book of Samuel. So you've got Samuel, Saul, and David. So Samuel, this is chapters 1 through 7, Hannah is this faithful woman who is barren, and she prays for a child and uh, promises to devote this child's life to service uh, in God's kingdom. And so God blesses her with a son. This uh, son's name is Samuel, and he grows into a great prophet. I say prophet, but that's really not exactly Samuel's whole story. Samuel's really a judge and a prophet. And so some people say there's seven judges, not six, because they count Samuel as the seventh judge. The idea is Samuel's kind of in this transition period. He's the last judge, but he's also the first prophet. And so he's helping lead Israel from 12 distinct tribes all at war with each other to a unified single kingdom. And Samuel's a really important player in that, in that story. The next important player in that story is Saul. So chapters 8 through 31 are about Saul. Israel asks for a king, and Saul is anointed. It's harsh on Israel about why are they asking for a king instead of just following God's way. And I, I, I guess that's probably the right Sunday school answer, but I kind of get it, right? So in Judges, it says like 14 times. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And like all this horrible evilness, chaos, uncivilization. I think trying to live in all of that kind of circumstance, when they look around and they say, well, the Assyrians have a king and they're not like killing each other and like they seem to be existing you know, reasonably well as a society. Why can't we have a king? And so I kind of guess, while it's probably not the exact heart in the right place, I see where Israel is coming from. They want a king. Um, and so God gives them a king. He gives them this king named Saul who is a profoundly complicated man. He's full of both incredible potential. He would be like the guy in, a, in your high school or college or maybe in your med- medical school class that everyone kind of looks to. What are we going to do next? And just kind of a natural leader that people gravitate to. So he's got a lot of power and potential in that way. He's the tallest guy, um, really a, a strong warrior. But he's also a deeply flawed man with a, a deep, dark side. So your blank there is character flaws. He's got deep character flaws. And of course, the, the point of Saul is that we're all Saul. And you have things about you, the brain God gave you, the uh, interpersonal skills you have, 
the family you have, the connections you have to really do profound things in the world. But ultimately, your character is your destiny. And so maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually the destiny of your life will be determined by your character and your faithfulness to live out the virtues that God's called you to. And so no matter how gifted God has made you and blessed you with, a, a corrupt character cannot um, outrun, or in, incredible potential and talent cannot outrun a corrupt character. And that's really the story of, of Saul's life, a talented man whose life ends in d- disaster uh, because of his flaws. So eventually Samuel confronts Saul over his arrogance and disobedience and tells Saul, your children are not going to get to be king. God is going to start a new line. And God chooses David because of his radical obedience. David is almost in some ways the opposite of Saul. Saul was this kind of natural choice to be the king. David's this red-headed shepherd boy that like, not that there's anything wrong with red hair, but not that, that, uh, that nobody thought would be king. Jesse didn't even think to present. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like one day we'll, we'll get beyond that sort of language. But. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I was gonna say actually, this ring. I'm on the redhead team. I married a redhead. I think they're great. Uh, um, Sorry, yeah. So J- Jesse, you know Obed's son, doesn't even think that David should be presented to Samuel as a potential king. I mean, this is not the right kind of person that we would pick. But man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so he saw in David a heart of deep obedience and conviction. And the first three-fourths of David's life is a story of radical obedience and devotion to to God and and his covenant. So David's success in battle enrages Saul and fills him with jealousy. That's your blank, jealousy. In exile, David is faithful and obedient to God. I wish we had time to talk about this idea a little bit more, but I think it shows something about David's character and a lesson for us. We all have opportunities where we could do something that no one would know about that would benefit us greatly but is not consistent to God's virtue and calling on our life. Whether that be taking a shortcut in how you care for a patient, um, maybe kind of be playing in the gray area with your academic integrity and how you prepare for exams and what resources you're using or not using. And no one's ever going to know, but no one's even going to blame you for it. Um, and David had those opportunities several times. Walks in Saul's tent, Saul's asleep. No one even knows he's there. He could have you know, cut his head off, and Saul's out there looking for him. But he doesn't do it because he knows it's not the right thing. And so I think that kind of character, that kind of intrinsic honor that David had explains a lot about why God chose him and what, what David does later in life. So David uh, successfully leads and unifies Israel by capturing Jerusalem and making it the political and religious capital of Israel. You think about why do the people of Israel care so much about Jerusalem? Jerusalem's been important to the uh, Israeli people for a long, long time. And David here captures Jerusalem, renames it Zion. This is going to be the political and religious center of Jewish life. And it will be this way, well, depending on how you read the Bible, maybe forever or whatever. But this is a huge, important place. Uh, he takes the Ark of the Covenant, takes it to Jerusalem. This is now the center of, of Jewish life. God promises that from David's line, a future king will come who builds God's temple on earth and establishes an eternal kingdom. So this is 1 Samuel 7. This is the Davidic covenant. So maybe you ought to read 1 Samuel 7 sometime. It's, I'd say it's one of the 20 most important chapters in the Bible if you want to like see the whole story. But God promises David. David wants to build 
the temple, right? And God says, you, you're not going to build the temple, but through you is going to come a king who will build a temple on earth and establish an eternal kingdom. And of course, that that eternal kingdom is established through Jesus and, and, and how that fulfills this prophecy for a king that will come through the line of David that um, will make a kingdom that will last forever. So, um, you know, obviously that, that king is not... Um, is not Solomon because Solomon builds a temple, but that temple is destroyed, right? And then the, even the second Jewish temple is destroyed in AD seventy. So, what is the temple that's going to last forever? Well, it's the church and the people of God, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit more later. But that this chapter is really important for how the Old Testament fits in together with the New Testament. So, unfortunately, David, of course, being named David, his character. I'm, really interested and really want to like cheer for and like I wish all the awesome things I said about David happened to be true throughout his whole life but it's not in the midst of this divine blessing David commits grotesque moral failures he really successfully breaks nearly all the Ten Commandments just like just how many of the Ten Commandments can I break in a row so he covets his neighbor's wife he he has adultery he basically commits murder he's deceptive and he lies filled with pride and arrogance uh, just a you know unbelievable picture of what happens when you allow the fleshly self to dominate you whether that be seeking power or prestige or sexual gratification and wanting to hide all those secrets at all costs even the murder of um, a, a faithful servant of his you know someone that that wanted to go out and fight for the Lord's army and protect David and his kingdom he essentially has this man murdered while David's cowardly sleeping with his wife um, underneath the safety of the walls that um, this man is providing just an absolute moral failure the kind of thing that we should um, look at with disdain and David's involved right this is God's chosen king David's involved in all that I think an important part here Samuel confronts David and man we're running long with this awesome story about the sheep and the, the man who has a bunch of sheep and the man who has a few sheep the point is um, the man who has more than he needs who will take from someone who has less than he needs that is just an incredibly offensive sin to God. And so, of course, God has blessed David with unbelievable riches and resources, uh, but that's not enough for David. He's got to go take the wife of another man. And um, so, so God views that just with such regret. David is broken when Samuel confronts him. So David is broken. He's repentant. He's ashamed. And God forgives David. So I think that's an important lesson there. Even that kind of sin can be forgiven. But the consequences of that sin don't disappear. And so that's, I think that's your blank there. Samuel confronts David in his sin. David is repentant and forgiven. You should read Psalm 51. It talks about David, that's David's repentant psalm after he's confronted with his sin uh, with Bathsheba. So that's, that's the, what he writes um, after that. But he's repentant and forgiven, but the consequences of his sin echo for centuries within Israel. So you um, are not blamed for the sin of your parents. Your children will not be blamed for your sins. But, but our sins and the consequences of those echo up and down our family lineage and the people that we touch and affect. And um, we could spend all night talking about different people and how um, that's true. The churches who have been destroyed and then the, the, the ministry that could have happened that didn't and families that have been broken down. That's absolutely what happens here. So the rest of Israel's story for the next... I guess five or six hundred years is basically set off because David um, wasn't faithful.
So then there's this epilogue at the end of of uh, 2 Samuel. So then there's stories of the establishment of Israel's kingdom that poetically point to God's plan to fulfill His promises. It's one of the themes of the Old Testament. God will fulfill His promises. So the last few chapters of 2 Samuel aren't in chronological order, but they're stories that kind of make this point, God will fulfill His promises. Gospel truth. David, in spite of his failure, is God's choice to be the beginning of an enduring dynasty from which a king who will lead Israel in bringing blessing to all nations will arise. So a king will come. That king will bless the whole world. That king will come from the line of David, who, of course, comes from the line of Abraham. Okay, first and second kings. Alright, so let's talk about First and Second Kings real quick. <clears throat> make a few points and then we'll we'll wrap it up. So the theme of First and Second Kings is the good God who oversaw the destruction of his chosen city and temple as well as the exile to Babylon is sovereign and faithful to his covenant promises. I think that's a helpful sentence for us to think about even today. God is sovereign even when things seem to be going poorly. It's not how we draw it up. God is sovereign God will keep his promises. Okay, so real quickly, five sections. So you got the contents. So Solomon reigns. David gives his charge to remain faithful. It seems like as soon as David finishes speaking, both he and Solomon forget everything he just said and then start off on uh, Israel's horrible downward trajectory. Solomon leads Israel astray through sexual sin, idolatry, greed. Kind of a side note, every time somebody in the Old Testament takes on an extra wife, it always ends bad. Always. And so I, I have a good friend who studied at a Harding, Harding School of Theology. He was saying the way Old Testament literature works, Israelite literature, sometimes they don't explicitly give a commandment. Sometimes they show through example what's true, good, and beautiful. And so the point here is, whether it be Abraham or whether it be Solomon or even David, when people, when you try to take extra wives, that's not God's plan uh, for how we should live in families and, and, and be married and celebrate God's gift of sex. And so um, Solomon takes like a thousand wives. And so, of course, this is a disaster. And he starts bringing in all these wives, gods and idols, and, and the downward cascade is unbelievable. So just like with David... David's sin is passed on to his descendants. In fact, one of David's sons tries to murder David. Um, it's not the same is kind of true of Solomon. So Solomon, one of his sons, is Rehoboam. Rehoboam becomes king once Solomon dies, and that's really the end of the kingdom, so to speak, of Israel. So Rehoboam institutes like slave labor. One of uh, this other Israelite named Jeroboam becomes furious and leads the northern kingdom into a civil war against the southern kingdom, and the kingdom split. So Israel is never the twelve tribes are never united again. So the ten tribes in the northern kingdom they make Samaria their capital. The northern king, the southern kingdom has Jerusalem. So Judah and Benjamin are in the southern kingdom. That's important later in the story, but Judah and Benjamin are in the southern kingdom. So Israel splits in two. Jeroboam leads the northern kingdom in revolt, and the kingdoms split. That's your blank. Israel's kings and prophets, Elijah and Elisha, unsuccessfully called the Israelites to covenant obedience. So even these great prophets do amazing works, preach with powerful conviction. They almost always fail. Almost always fail. Think about the story of Isaiah. 
Isaiah spends like 45 years telling Israel, repent or you'll be taken into captivity. Like for 45 years, walks around telling anyone who will listen to him this, anyone that will listen to him this. He gets an old, he becomes an old man on his deathbed. Israel's taken into captivity and then he dies. So he asked God to not make him a prophet. God makes him a prophet. He preaches something for 40 years, but the people don't listen to him and they get the consequences that he told them were coming. And uh, I think so. the lesson here is that our call is not to results. Our call is to faithfulness. And so sometimes faithfulness in the eyes of the world does not put you in a successful place. We're going to to preach things that the rest of the world finds unpopular. We're going to be delivering bad news to people who want to ignore bad news and don't want to hear it. But that's really not the point. Our point is to plant the seed. It's God's job to reap the harvest. And so sometimes, just like uh, Elijah and Elisha, we can be faithful. We can even be powerful in our Holy Spirit conviction. Uh, But that doesn't mean that everyone turns... uh, turns from their ways and turns to God in repentance. The road to exile, covenant, unfaithfulness, and idolatry leads a serious conquering of Israel. So by Israel here, I mean that, that's the name of the ten northern tribes. They were called Israel. So Israel is conquered by Assyria, taken into, into captivity. The ten tribes are gone from the historical record forever. Okay, so the ten tribes go north to Assyria. They're taking the slavery. Eventually, their descendants assimilate. There is no, like right now, 2019, there are no northern tribes. They're, they're gone and lost to, uh, to civilization because of assimilation and, and their descendants. There, there's no cultural or ethnic northern uh, kingdom anymore. So then Jerusalem's demise and the Babylonian exile is the fifth part. Judah's covenant unfaithfulness leads to the Babylonian exile. So this happens. uh, um, The Babylonian exile, the southern kingdom is taken into Babylon and lives there as a a Jewish nation in Babylon. Some of the southern kingdom is allowed to stay in the south. The Babylonians take the best and the brightest with them to Babylon and leave kind of the, uh, the, the lower and working class. So this story doesn't kind of end like it's not uh, the Bible does this kind of like judges ends like terrible like on this bad note and Second Kings kind of does that too. There's not really like a resolution here. I guess you got to keep reading to figure out what happens. But I do think there's a gospel truth. There is hope because God's chosen royal line has not come to an end. So you see here that the people of God, the people who God promised to bless the world through, that line is not broken, right? Because Judah is in. Um, the southern kingdom, right? So, so Judah and... Does so anybody remember what, what um, tribe Paul was from? So he's from Benjamin, right? So Judah and Benjamin are preserved. Uh, the northern kingdom is gone, though. God remains ready to forgive those who are repentant. Okay, so First Second Chronicles. So First Second Chronicles tell the story of the rise and fall of Israel's kingdom with a focus on the Davidic covenant as the enduring basis of Israel's life and hope. So First Second Chronicles tell this whole story, but it's not as much from a historical perspective as a theological perspective. So the author in First Second Chronicles is saying this is why this happened. This is the theological meaning behind these historical events. The Davidic covenant is expressed in the two institutions that derive directly from it, the monarchy and the temple. So the Davidic co- covenant finds its power, finds its meaning, finds its um, long-term f- 
fulfillment in the presence of the monarchy and the presence of the temple. So that's why later when they return from exile, so spoiler alert, they're going to get to go back to Israel. When they come back home, they've got to rebuild the temple. Right? That's a big thing. They reestablish the monarchy, rebuild the temple. So the gospel illusions are profound and I think obvious. The mono- as far as the monarchy goes, Jesus is our king. So I think that's what the whole New Testament is about. God is forming a new kind of kingdom, and Jesus is the king. We're citizens of a new and different kingdom, and it's the kingdom where Jesus reigns. And as as far as the temple goes, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So on the cross, remember, the veil is torn in two in in the rebuilt temple, and now access to the most holy place is open to everyone because God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is not confined to the most holy, holy place. It's in the people of the church. So, so where is God's temple, the place where He resides? It's in His Christians. It's in His baptized believers who have come together to live out His purposes, to, be, to fulfill Israel's mission, because we're the new Israel, to be a light to the world. So Israel's calling was to be a light to the world. The church's calling is to continue that charge, to be a light to the world filled with God's Spirit. It's a lot of books. Uh, I know, I'm sorry I went over, but man, that's a really, really cool story. And uh, chapter 6 coming up later on. We're actually really not that far over. What we- I want to thank David for teaching tonight. I know he had a lot going on this week, and covering this many books as well as he did was no small task. And I loved tonight's lesson. I thought it was really great. Of course, as, as you're listening to this, Maybe you're in your car, you're running, or whatever. There are two really important videos that we left out. So we don't want to you know, leave the podcast going as it plays videos that you may not be able to hear that well. So I do recommend, as I normally do, going to the Bible Project and watching these videos. So we actually showed a video on, I believe, First Kings, uh, no, sorry, First Samuel, and then he showed the video on Kings. Uh, both videos were extremely good and so I think you'd miss something if you didn't watch both of those videos I have not watched the videos on Ruth or on Chronicles or on 2nd Samuel but I'm guessing that those videos also are extremely good so go watch those as well um, we'll be back in two weeks we're gonna take a break from the series on the Old Testament we will return to it and we're gonna do a series on hard questions and so some difficult uh, questions of faith that I'm sure that you'll enjoy and then uh, we'll come back to the Old Testament, eventually get through the New Testament. We have a series on uh, sex and gender roles and some things I think you'll also enjoy. And then around the middle of May, we will wrap up for the second year of MDDDS. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you have any uh, input for us, please let us know. If you're in the Memphis area, you're a medical or dental student, please join. Uh, we're here on Monday nights, 630 at my house in Germantown. You can message us online to uh, get in touch with us about that. That's all I have for tonight. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks when we rejoin. Thanks for tuning in to the MDDDS podcast. Dr. Kyle Fagala, have a good night. Bye-bye.